Fate would like to thank Colart for sponsoring this episode of Positive Space. A longtime supporter of Fate, Colart are the people behind companies such as Windsor & Newton, Liquitex, Conti, Reeves, and a whole host of others. Need an art supply? One of Colart's companies probably covers it. Find out more at colart.com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Valerie Powell. Welcome to Positive Space. Today joining us via Skype, we have Lily Coonan, Associate Professor of Art and Foundations Coordinator at Jacksonville University. Welcome, Lily. Hi. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. And, and I was actually, you know, in preparation for this, I was trying to think of when I actually met you. And I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it just feels like I've sort of always known you within like the fake community or the ITI community or CCAC or, or something of the sort. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hmm. I, you know, I don't know either. We were in that small group, uh, a breakout group at ITI's think tank eight, was it? Or seven? <laughs> yeah. Was, was that in Chicago or was that the first time that we were in Montana? That was the first time in Montana. So we were in that small group, but I think we already knew each other before that. I do too, but it's like, I have no idea how. It's just one of those things that just sort of cosmically occurred. Who knows? Because I get asked those sorts of questions like, oh, when when did you meet so-and-so? And it's like, I've got nothing. I, I don't know. Like nothing. I just know that I've, I feel like I've, I've known you for a long time, but I, I don't know how it happened or where it happened. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that has like a complete blurred memory of that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I thought we would sort of begin with a general in- introduction in terms of who you are as an artist and as an educator. So sort of what you make and then, of course, what, what you currently are teaching. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I make what I call plaintings, which is self-prescribed moniker. It is a hybrid term of play plus painting. And essentially the kind of way I frame my studio practice with that in mind is that I can incorporate painting uh, with additional forms, materials, actions, or processes. And essentially, it opens up the field quite a bit. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so essentially, you know, it, it, the outcome may not look like a painting. Uh, it might look more sculptural. It might have a much more drawing base to it. It might also be more installation-based. However, I don't necessarily feel like I create installations because I don't feel that they're incredibly site-specific. I find that I am more site-responsive, but that the work itself can exist in different formats. And so installation, though, in the aspect of kind of utilizing space to some degree, so works may not you know, solely exist on the wall. They might be somewhere in between the floor, the ceiling, and the wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I work within this kind of terminology that I've created for myself. In addition to that, uh, I find that my 
play, the place that I'm at is very significant to me. You know, I said I was kind of site responsive. Um, and that's something that I haven't really, or I've realized, I guess, more recently within my practice, maybe in the last few years, the effect that place has on what I'm producing. And so that typically adds to, you know, visual cues or kind of optical things that I'm interested in. So it may not directly look like something like a place, but there might be some type of reaction that I'm having to that place and interpreting that through the, you know, color choices and formal qualities of the work. In addition to that, more recently, I have come to the conclusion that place is not just a geographic location, but it's also our current time and space that we're occupying, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a very interesting place in history, I think. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's it's terribly complicated and strange, I think. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's had quite a more significant impact on what I've been producing, especially even in the last year. And so that has altered a lot of the decisions that I'm making, at least on the kind of, like I said, the kind of formal surface quality of the work. And it has a deeper root, though, in something that's been part of my practice since I can remember, which I have gone through a range of different styles. I'm kind of really comfortable moving in between abstraction, you know, non-objectivity, and then even representation to some degree, kind of determine what the project needs, you know, um, and access that through the end result of the piece, you know, so oftentimes, a lot of times the, the work, you know, will kind of quote unquote, look like something. <laughs> right, right. I'm really interested in those associations that people build because they're not always the same. You know, it's like when you can lay in a park and look up at the clouds and everybody sees something different, you know, mm-hmm. um, see something. And I think that's what's important. So the kind of longer trajectory with the interest in kind of current time and place as part of the work has been related to my interest in relationships of power and the way in which, at least in painting in particular, it's a lot about how materials come together, you know, how you're manipulating the painting on the paint on the surface of the canvas, for example, or also kind of how visual forces interact. So this idea of kind of power structures, interdependence, balance, even as basic as a lot of our kind of foundational principles, even when you're thinking about it. So those kind of qualities, those interactions of materials, to me, can speak to greater things within the world that I'm trying to deal with. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, that's been a lot of kind of the immediate aspects of my work, I guess, very recently. Within that space, too, I find that, you know, like the viewer's interpretation is always really important. And I know that everybody always says that. But I am very kind of curious about engaging people in a way that feels, you know, I get the response to my work that it's like really fun. <laughs> or look at. And I think that's really important because I want people to access it in a way that they can be first engaged on kind of like that fun quality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really think about what's going on um, within the image or within the surface. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's about capturing the viewer first and then getting them to spend the time and really think about what's going on. So that's a little bit about my studio practice and materials can range from really just anything that is available and useful in my studio. My kind of definition that I've set up for myself 
does not mean that just paint is involved. It's really a broad range. And I've been driven a lot by researching materials. And whenever a new material kind of enters into the spectrum of the studio, then I have to really kind of figure out what that material is doing. So uh, a couple of years ago, I started getting really interested in dry pigments, which is, you know, the base for making painting and the saturation qualities of dry pigments and, you know, the different applications and then you name it. Basically, once I learn about something new, then I want to explore how I can use that. Um, and as far as teaching goes, the question was about kind of what I do at my institution or... Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or sort of what do you feel like your role is as an educator? Yeah. So I think part of that has to do with what I teach. Um, so I, as foundations coordinator, I teach a significant portion of our foundation's education at my university. I don't teach all of it. Um, I do have colleagues that also teach within foundations. But I also teach a level that we call our kind of pre-professional studies. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a, a fun kind of word, I think, pre-professional. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then more recently, I've been teaching, at least in this past year, I've been teaching a capstone course, and I have also taught off and on within our low residency graduate program at JU, but also I taught within SAIC, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago's uh, low residency MFA program. So I teach a real range <laughs> right. um, you know, from these incoming freshmen to MFA students, essentially. Within that, I find a lot of similarities <laughs> in students. Um, I sometimes think that my 18 year olds are almost the same as my MFA students. Um, it's not <laughs> a bad thing. I think it's uh, a testament to, you know, when you devote yourself to entering the track of education, you know, whether you're a freshman starting at a university or, you know, starting your grad program or going back to school or whatever. The thing is that like, you need to be open and you are ready and you are, you know, learning from your peers. And so all of those things that we always kind of talk about in, in pedagogy and sort of best practices happen at lots of different levels. And right. I don't can, yeah. And I don't think we can isolate students as like, this is one type of student at this age, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I'm interested in those similarities and ways that you can drive students in sort of similar challenges, even if they are at different levels of education. And then my role is, you know, as a professor, and I think one of the big things that I've actually been having a lot of conversations with my colleagues about this lately is that I'm interested in, some people might disagree with this, <laughs> in getting students to sort of act as consumers of what they are making uh, and by that, I mean, you know, they, they go through this range of learning materials, learning new techniques, going through projects, producing work. And I'm interested in them in sort of like taking that, all of that and consuming it. And so if you think about it as a relationship to like food, you know, we eat something, it tastes good. And we're like, oh, that was nice. Um, I'm satisfied. What <laughs> <laughs> more, right? And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do with education is get them to like take in what they have done process it, enjoy it, but then also move on to the next course or the next, you know, dessert or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea that they don't stop with one thing, you know, and, and I think that's part of that has to do with continuity in the education, continuity in a foundations program, continuity from foundations into the next, you know, level of their education. And so that they are kind of utilizing those things, absorbing them, 
and then moving forward. Um, I think too many times students hit a wall and they think like, this is it. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And I think this idea that there's a connection between like this course and that course or this thing that you're making in a painting class and this thing that you're doing in a sculpture class that they're not all isolated. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Your experience teaching foundation students and and MFA students, I mean, I'm I'm curious in terms of this connection that you're seeing um, between those two groups. Yeah, well, you know, uh, we've all been, well, I think probably most people that are listening to this have been through an MFA program of some sort. (laughs) Right, right. I think a lot of programs, a lot of MFA programs, students enter into it and it's not that their goal is to kind of break them down, but it's to get them to really determine what they're doing and what is significant in their practice and maybe what elements they are going to leave behind and what elements they're going to move forward with. And in the programs that I've been teaching in our, their low residency programs, which is also a different type of student, many of them are already established in their career or have been working as an artist or an educator of, of some degree for a while, but looking to reconnect with a community of learners and, you know, through the MFA program. And so they are really thirsty for information and they're ready for the challenges that you want to set up for them. But they're also just, I mean, it's kind of like they're going back to basics with things in a way. Um, So really look at their practice and say, you know, in some cases I've had students who have made they're living off of their work for a while, but they're like, I don't know if I want to keep painting beach paintings, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so they have a lot of skills already, but they're really turning inward to look at their practice. And what I also find is that at least I find this in my program, I'm sure most people find it in theirs as well, that the sense of community is really strong and they are very uh, supportive, but also critical of each other. And I think that's the exact thing, same thing that we hope to build in foundations programs. Um, we want them to find support with their peers, but we also want them to find a challenge with their peers. You know, I think a healthy amount of competition is important <laughs> and I think it makes us stronger. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned relationships to to power structures and and sort of thinking about that. I mean, how do you, I mean, now that you're a tenured faculty member, I mean, how have you viewed that power structure sort of change for you? Do you mean sort of within the institution or within the... Yeah, or or I guess has that, I guess, changed in any way now that you're not like a tenure track person? It's not, you know, it's sort of, it's not like a fairy godmother comes and like waves their magic wand. (laughs) Now you're tenured. You You can stay up past midnight now. (laughs) (laughs) It's not exactly that. I, I think, hmm, I'm not sure how I want to answer it exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 and maybe that's sort of not a fair question to ask. And I'm sorry that maybe I sort of threw that at you. I, I think that one thing has, and this has actually started before I was tenured, but I've taken on the role of, of mentoring faculty quite a bit, whether that is a one-year visiting faculty or a colleague that is entering our university in a tenure track position. And I take that role of mentorship very seriously. Uh, and uh, like I said, a lot of universities, you know, have some type of mentor program or some way that, you know, faculty are partnered with another faculty 
um, even if it's just a collaborative project. But I really do think that the significance of that role of mentorship is important, not only to the longevity and kind of prosperity of a program, you know, we talked at the beginning about the idea of continuity, you know, between a, a, even within a program. And so that same thing applies to the role we have as faculty in relationship to our other faculty. You know, it's not just with our students. And so I started mentoring, you know, other faculty before getting tenure, but I've also worked um, with several of them since then too. So I think that's a really strong part of it. I don't think that my tenureship has anything to do with that, but that is something that I feel compelled, you know, to, to be a mentor and, and help my colleagues in a way that will make our program more successful. Sure. And I mean, I, I think we often talk about a community that we want to establish for our students, but I mean, I think having that sense of community among your peers, as colleagues is super important and, and really can impact how you feel about your job or how you feel valued or how you feel um, heard in terms of that structure of assessment and power and, and all of those things that are kind of happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what does the mentorship look like? Is there like a formal partnership that happens? Is it something that you feel like is more organic? At our institution, it's assigned. So I was assigned to be mentor to certain of my co- my colleagues. There is not really a hard set rule within that. Um, there are a few things that I have to do, and that's pretty much it. And then anything above and beyond that is up to me. So we have an annual assessment process, you know, that we do on ourselves, and then gets it gets reviewed by our chair and our dean and our university. And so the sort of one thing I have to do is help train them on that assessment process and help them develop their quantifiable goals, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which surprisingly people are not always great at writing quantifiable goals, like things that you can actually prove or disprove. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's really kind of one of the only things that you have to do as a mentor. But outside of that, one of the things I like to do is you know, meet with them periodically so that they, that allows them an open time to ask questions. Cause I think sometimes people feel like they don't want to ask questions because they don't want to seem like they haven't done their work to try to find the answers when in truth they probably have, but you know, they <laughs> haven't had any luck or, or just need a little bit more of a personal look at something working with Ray Goodman through ITI, you know, she always talked about the, being aware of the humans in the room. And I think that mentorship is, is a lot about that. It's, you know, you, you are definitely in a role uh, of helping someone, but you're also making it a human thing. You know, you're making it not something just about like a difference of hierarchy or a difference of role in the institution. You're really trying to deal with the individual and their needs. And I think that more and more education is changing. And I think we need to not lose sight of the individual. Right. Yeah, it's so important just having that connection. And those are the things that we tend to remember about places and jobs. It's it's not the really well written form that you had to fill out. It's it's the person. It's it's that experience and how that made you feel. So you mentioned ITI and so can can you talk a little bit about that community and maybe how you got involved and and sort of became the president? <laughs> uh sure. So I started my job 
at Jacksonville University in 2011. And at that time, my current dean was serving on the board of ITI and encouraged me to get involved with the organization or at least apply to go to a think tank. And I had heard somehow, you know, through the grapevine about ITI and FATE and CCAC and all of those, you know, organizations that I think are really rich part of our our fabric of higher education instruction and and development. And so I had already been involved with uh, CCAC and conferences, but I hadn't attended anything like ITI before. So I went to Think Tank 7 in Chicago in summer of 2012, and that was my first Think Tank. And I was before I went, I read all of the Future Forward publications, which are all free and available on our website. <laughs> <laughs> A little plug there. And I was just so excited. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh man, you know, here are all these people that are thinking about a lot of the same things I'm thinking of. And sometimes just knowing that you, that other people feel the same way as you is helpful. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That you're not this like island sort of floating. (laughs) So I went and was involved in a group about community and sort of bringing community into the classroom or what does that look like? And one thing that I really enjoyed about the process was that we discussed really applicable ways to take ideas back to your institution. So ITI is structured where, so ITI is Integrated Teaching International and we're structured where we do a biennial think tank event, which brings typically a roughly around 60 plus educators together And they are divided into small breakout topic groups, which have a kind of abstract proposal of the topic in general, centered around a theme of the entire think tank. And over the course of a few days, all of the educators work together to hash out ideas surrounding that theme and content and bring their own sort of personal research, their own ideas, their own experiences from their home institutions to the conversation. And the end goal is, yes, we want kind of theoretical ideas about this, but we also want practical applications. Following the conference, there are presentations by each group. So you get to experience a little taste of what all of the other groups were working on outside of what you yourself worked on. And then following the conference, the information and the collaborative research and the particular kind of applicable ideas go into exemplars and content to produce the Future Forward journal that comes out roughly about eight to 10 months after the Think Tank event. And in our sort of off-year cycles, we arrange for smaller events called Think Catalyst events. And these range in variety, scale, size, scope, et cetera. And we've been very lucky in the last couple of years, we've been partnering with a lot more institutions to produce Think Catalyst events. We typically always produce one in conjunction with FATE, the FATE conference, but we've also partnered with individual institutions, Utah State University, Muskegon Community College. We're currently talking with a few other institutions about designing Think Catalyst events for them. We also were at uh, Penland recently, and these events are really fun because they can be really different depending on what the organization or institution wants from us. I think one of the strongest aspects of the Think Catalyst is that typically the facilitators 
that are ITI facilitators come to work with this organization or institution without an agenda. There's always a kind of programming topic, but they don't really have an agenda with it. And so they come in sort of free of an agenda to help facilitate conversations with people that have an agenda. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I think the strongest part with that is that it allows a better dialogue and more people to be heard so they can feel like they're getting their agenda across, but they're also respecting their colleagues or their other peers that are involved in that process. So I kind of got off on a tangent there, but essentially I went to Think Tank 7, got very involved in the organization, got very interested in it. I also participated in writing part of uh, and contributing to that first article from my breakout group, which was also a really exciting thing to do. Collaborative writing with like 10 other people is uh, (laughs) a very fun and challenging process. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And then I continued to participate in Think Catalyst events and Think Tanks. And following the first year at MSU at Montana State University, uh, that's when I joined the board as an associate VP of programming. I really enjoyed developing ideas that are going to be kind of the the launch for topics and um, the direction of our institution and program. So programming was a really easy fit for me. And from there, I escalated to vice president, working alongside Ray Goodwin when she was president of ITI. Then when she, when her term concluded, I took over as president. And, or I shouldn't say took over. I was elected as president. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've been serving as president for two years now with ITI. And we have probably the largest board we've had so far. There's uh, 20 members of our board, which we're in, we don't have huge events. You know, we, we do these kind of 60 people events. And so the 20 people really kind of is a testament to a lot of the initiatives that we have started within ITI. And many of these things are inherited. I have to, you know, thank the people that were my predecessors putting things in place. And we're now kind of carrying out some of those programs and and starting new things as well. So being able to host more, significantly more Think Catalyst events has been one of our main focuses. Uh, We also developed a new initiative called ITI Field Notes, which is not a formal publication, but it's a way to drive influences and create connections between educators and kind of keep our sort of social aspect alive, I think. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so many other aspects, but essentially ITI was started by a group of educators that uh, had been very active in, you know, the various conferences and organizations that we already kind of know around, but wanted to find a different format for engaging in communication, you know, through collaborative research, which you know, conferences are always changing and always developing. And I think that ITI is a great option for finding a voice, you know, within your fellow educators. It hinges on partnering, you know, master educators, people who have been educating for a while, including administrators, with our emerging educators. And I myself was an emerging educator when I first participated, you know, it was my second teaching job and my first year at my institution. So, you know, I was relatively a newbie when I first became involved with ITI. But to feel like you can talk and you can be heard in a setting 
is really crucial at that phase. And I think that's one of the wonderful things that ITI does. So Mary Stewart and Jim Malinsky, Richard Seigsman, Adam Kalish, these are several of the, the people that got started. And there were a lot of people on the early board, you know, that were involved. Uh, Peter Wynott um, is another one. So it's, it's grown. Uh, this is, I think, Tank 10 this summer. And we are very excited because our range of applicants are going to be participating are coming from a lot of different levels of the institution, but also a lot of different types of institutions, not just higher education in the arts, which I think is really exciting. They're all involved in the arts to some degree, but we've got a few you know, gallery coordinators, museum directors, arts alliance organizers. I think we have a few high school arts educators, which is a really important thing to think about the connection we have to our home base, you know? So it's, it's a really exciting time to kind of see how ITI is growing. It really is. And there, there are so many folks that are involved in FATE or CCAC or CAA that also kind of cross over into that ITI community, which is exciting. But, you know, it, it's such a unique kind of community because if there's no membership fees. Right. There isn't like a pro, like a formal membership kind of experience. Um, and the, the events that, that you guys have are really unique in terms of the way that they're set up. So it's not like a typical conference experience. There's a lot of opportunities to be be really active and be really present and be very much, you know, uh, expected to participate in a, in a really specific way, you know, around a table and sort of share ideas, which is, which is so unique. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I haven't really experienced anything too similar to it. I think that, like I said, I think conferences are always kind of changing and I've been to some really exciting panels at some conferences recently, but I think the conversation, conversation structure and the ability for that kind of transcendence of voice, you know, between different levels of educators is the really significant aspect of ITI. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I think it's, it's pretty common within whatever institution that we're teaching at to kind of find ourselves around the same sort of people. And I think being able to expand that conversation and, and hear different points of view from like a high school teacher to somebody that's working not even at an institution, you know, but, but just, just right. sort of hear, hear those perspectives. It's, it's always so important not to just sort of get stuck in your own little island or world. Mm-hmm. In fact, we just hosted our most recent Think Catalyst event was actually not even art specific. It was higher education specific, but not art specific. And so we had biology and geology and business and psychology uh, professors all involved. And I think one of the meaningful aspects of that was that the structure of higher education, we are teaching specific concentrations, degrees, et cetera, but we're all dealing with the same students. (laughs) Right. They take my class and then they go take a math class and then they go take their physiology class and anatomy class and whatever. And we're dealing with that same student though. And so how can we either be better associates, you know, to that student working in our network? What are the positive things that we can reinforce across discipline, across all of our different areas, but also what are the unique challenges, you know, of our, our students right now? And and how, how does that look different depending on what they're studying or what class they're in even. Right. I mean, that that's so smart because this idea that we should only be talking to art faculty to share tips and tricks is kind of silly, right? I mean, because everybody has those experiences with the same 
type of student. And so how can we be more open and sort of sharing that experience? That's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think so for sure. And, you know, art is not, (laughs) we may feel siloed sometimes, but you know, art responds to our community, our culture, our society. It is, it borrows all the time from philosophy and sociology and (laughs) everything. So, you know, we are one of those disciplines that has our our finger in everything. And so I think it's important for us to be cognizant of that when we are thinking about our students and, you know, they're them as a whole. (laughs) Right. And not just part of them or the component that we're more familiar with. And, you know, plus to just sort of give everyone an understanding that art is everywhere and it's sort of hard not to experience it or have um, some connection to it, especially, especially given the fact that so many artists are responding to what's going on in our current climate. And all of that gets sort of funneled through visual experiences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Our, our think tank this summer, Think Tank 10, will be hosted by University of Delaware. And in particular, Greg Shellnut has been our go-to person for this. We're excited about this partnership and we have never been in Delaware as an organization. So that's exciting. And the topics, you know, although we are approaching it through an arts lens, for sure, because our, our Think Tank 10s are primarily focused on studio art and design, art history, uh, etc. But the topics like we're talking about, you know, do transcend. So one in particular is about place. You know, I was mentioning that earlier when I was talking about my work, but, you know, a lot of colleges and universities are in college towns, you know, which are not major metropolises. Right. (laughs) Um, Or if they are in a larger uh, city, you know, there might be several institutions all in that city. You know, there's multiple universities, community colleges, et cetera. And so, you know, what is that significant impact that place has on education, on the student, but also acknowledging that also many of our students don't necessarily come from exactly where they're going to school. So right. they have, you know, moved for <laughs> to go to school, then they're bringing their other heritage and their their past, you know, with them to a new place, adjusting to a new location. Um, so I think that's a really interesting topic, you know, we're going to be dealing with. Another one is um, art and activism, which I think is a very topical idea. I think it's a significant topic on everyone's minds, you know, especially in relationship to the rise of lots of various ways to be active. <laughs> mm-hmm. We are also considering, you know, something that is, uh, I think, a, an age-old idea within the arts, which is this kind of practical hand skill and tradition and craft, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but also thinking about it in relationship to the fact that many of our students are not coming in with automatic skills in that area. You know, I teach all of my students how to read a ruler and how to Oh, same here. Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but in relationship to that, how can we partner that to skills that they do have and the skills that they're bringing and teaching us? And then another category, which I also think is a, a really significant topic. I mean, all of these are, but entrepreneurialism and the way in which our students are being, uh, evaluated, it's connected to assessment in the university and that, you know, we're, we're making students who are qualified for jobs. <laughs> right. Right. What are we putting out and what are we yeah. doing to, to sort of keep our promises? And I think in a lot of ways, the arts 
I don't want to say that we're doing this better than other people, but you know, we're making creative individuals. And the best thing about creative individuals is that we can figure out how to do things. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. We are problem solvers, you know, and if the problem is I need a paycheck, you know, then we're going to figure out how to make that happen. <laughs> but, I, but, you know, we also have, you know, the unique juncture of getting students to consider how to apply those skills that they have worked, you know, so hard over the last four or five years to develop. One of the best examples I can give is that, you know, I went to undergrad in, a, in Arkansas, in central Arkansas, and probably 10 of my closest friends who are all within the arts, mostly within theater and visual arts, all have amazing, you know, rock star jobs within their field. And so I don't believe the fact that you can say that, you know, a student doesn't have a career in the arts <laughs> because I have so many wonderful examples of people that I find and uh, around me that I respect. And I say, you just have to figure out what your path is and nobody's path looks the same. But hearing stories is, I think, really helpful to students. You know, they hear the different ways in which people have developed their track and, you know, grown their profession and found their place within the arts community. Right. And this idea that most creative folks are flexible and malleable and probably adaptive to change in very specific ways. And and so that's such an advantage in the workplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How have you adapted to your leadership role in ITI? I mean, in terms of thinking about your goals or your, cause you're involved in so many things and how, how has that changed how you approach work or your life as an educator? Are there things that you feel like you've learned about yourself? I was, I was on the skateboard alongside starting on the ITI board. And I, I think one of the greatest things about being on a board is that you have all these friends across the U S you know, <laughs> I really do mean it as a friend, you know, I'm not just saying that. I think that, you know, when we get on a board conference call, we're all like laughing and enjoying each other and asking about something that's going on, or even a casual email can include some exciting announcement, you know, somebody's going to have a baby or something's happening or whatever. And I think that because we aren't involved in each other's institutions necessarily, there's a lot more flexibility to be relaxed in that situation. And again, to kind of go back to that idea of like the humanity, right. To, to really feel the humans that you're working with. (laughs) Right. And to also acknowledge that it's an entirely voluntary position. And so as a leader, I never want to make someone do something that they can't do. (laughs) And I also want to be aware that we all have so many other responsibilities that we're dealing with. And so trying to create realistic timelines so that we are productively moving forward, but also being sustainable, (laughs) which I think is partially why our board has grown kind of large because it allows for more people to help with the tasks. So it's not just one person feeling potentially overwhelmed. You can sort of share the load and you can have more input, hear from other voices, which is, which is always really, really great. I'm curious because Obviously, be, being on any board and sort of our understanding of things is, is voluntary, which you mentioned. So there's no stipend or fancy jacket or something like that that, you know, we're given. And, and so I'm curious, like, how do you how do you manage your time in terms of just like practical tips for for anyone that's you know involved in any kind of administrational or just being an artist and being an educator or owning a pet and liking to go outside and just 
all those are things that I think we, we, we all sort of think about a lot. Yeah. So that's, that's something that's looked very different at any one point in my career. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I will say, so I, at one point, several, a few years ago, I served on the search committee for our university's provost. And I was still a very young faculty at that point. I'm still a young faculty, I would say. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I was three years in at my institution. So I, you know, was at that point, you know, I was not tenured like I'm now, but at any rate, you know, I'm interviewing these amazing candidates who have accomplished so many wonderful things across all different types of institutions, different scale, different, you know, size of faculty and student body, et cetera. You know, and that was one of the questions we asked them was like, how are, how have you accomplished all of this? And all of them to some degree answered in a way that was simply like, I manage my time very effectively. And when I work, I get things done. I don't get distracted by other tasks. And I'm not sure that I always am successful at that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do get distracted quite a bit, but I also think that's partially the like visual artist in me is because I look at things and I get intrigued by things and I want to make connections between things. So that's been a a little bit of the battle, you know, (laughs) to be a more effective worker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think realistically, I also know that I am a procrastinator don't tell anyone that. <laughs> but knowing that about myself, then I always have to set a deadline in some cases, two weeks ahead of something. You know, if it's maybe less significant of something, it might only be a couple days ahead of that deadline. So the deadline that I write in my calendar is different than the actual deadline. And then I have to get it done by the deadline in the calendar, which also allows me, you know, the leverage of like, okay, I have one more day that I can do this. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like you kind of like trick yourself into getting going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, it's a, it's a very easy thing to do, but that's been something that has always been helpful to me. I also think about structuring my time. You know, I had a conversation with my students the other day who were in their senior year, they're working on their BFA thesis exhibition and they were all lamenting the amount of time that had gone by between critiques that it, they all considered it to be too short of amount of time. And it was two weeks. And I said, two weeks in the professional world is way different than two weeks in your current world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you need to think about that because this is a professional class and we're preparing you for that. And so two weeks is a significant, I mean, I can have many deadlines within two weeks and make significant progress on a project. If I go really prepared into the studio, I can make five new things in one day, if I'm really prepared for that time, you know, that's not something that you automatically are built in thinking that way. And so I think it's important to have those conversations with students about time and time management. And one of my colleagues always, Jim Benedict, who teaches sculpture and also teaches in foundations with me, always talks about the two accounts that you have in life. You have the time account and the money account. (laughs) (laughs) spend more time on something and less money, you know, especially if you're like DIY making something happen, or you can spend more money and less time. And at different times in your life, you have to make that decision. Is this the time that I spend more money or is this the time that I spend more time? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's, it's kind of a simple idea, but like really significant and important because I think students often think that they are going to spend more time on something and less money. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. Or their understanding of how much money they've spent is not really reflective of like a reality in terms of right. that, or, um, you know, or yeah, or time. Yeah. It's so important. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, and money is not always like just money, you know, that that's basically like, uh, so the sort of capital idea of what you're spending on something, you know, um, the investment that you have made in something. And so, you know, we're thinking of different strategies, at least at our institution, about ways to make students more aware of this. We're developing a, a, a digital foundations course that sort of suffices our university's requirement for a technology intensive course. But we're building into that things like Excel spreadsheets and budget development and, and time check sheets and, and, you know, things like that to really because I don't think we are really honest with ourselves about analyzing how we spend our time. If we sit down to do a task and we have 20 emails to take care of, and then all of a sudden we're looking at something else and reading an article on Huffington Post and whatever, (laughs) we didn't spend two hours doing those emails, even though we said we did, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, it's about being honest with yourself. I know that over the last several years, one of the tasks I've given myself is to really reflect on what I want to spend my time on because my time is important to me. Making an effective workday for my students is really important. You know, I don't ever let that fall apart. You know, going into each day, knowing what I'm going to do that day with the students is, is always important. So I always know that's going to be a part of my time. Grading, <laughs> assessment, university service, all those things that we know we have to do are always a part of the time. Wanting to be a part of these different boards that I've been a part of, being a leadership role in those boards was something that I didn't automatically think that I, I wanted, you know, or wanted to spend my time on, but it became a really important thing that I did want to contribute time to. And, you know, part of it is that community of educators that you become involved in and care about and want to be a part of some type of working environment with. And so that, you know, was something significant returning to dance actually. So I, I had a long history in dance and theater and visual arts as well. And realizing that dance was still something that I valued is really important. So I've been taking dance classes again for <laughs> the last oh, how fun! three years. Yeah, I'm actually taking classes at my university now, which is kind of cool. <laughs> and so these kind of things, you know, I think it's important also to model to our students that you can work really hard and you can be, you know, super devoted to something but what provides you mental health and mental balance and, you know, being physically active, going outside, doing something that is not in your wheelhouse of expertise, you know, these things that provide us challenges in different ways, all are things that contribute to us being better humans. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. And this idea that maybe there's there's something with, within your schedule that might put you out of your realm of comfort or might make you curious or activated creatively, creatively. Wow. That's not a word. Creatively (laughs) is, is a really exciting thing. Cause I mean, I I think that we ask our students and expect our students to try new things and be really Mm -hmm. open and really consider what their artistic habits are, but it's so important for us to reflect on that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so I, I don't think I have a perfect model, but it is one that I am aware of and always trying to work on. And so 
sort of thinking about how much of all of these activities do I want in my life? And, and it changes, you know, week to week, like this week, I'm going to give more to this aspect of my life. And next week, I'm going to give more to this aspect of my life. And that's fine. But I, you know, if you're not aware of it, then you can't make those decisions. Exactly. And then if, if you're not aware of it and reflective about it, then it just feels like everything is happening to you, you know, and you're just sort of in this responsive mode or just like reactionary mode, which I've, I've been in that place before and it's awful, you know, it just feels like, Oh no, I'm drowning. What do I do? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it has been so lovely to get to talk to you and I just really appreciate your time and especially explaining all of the ITI things and what that group does and and where it's positioning itself in the future with future events. And so if folks are interested in participating in Think Tank 10 at the University of Delaware, is there a cutoff time for signing up or being Uh, involved? Our applications have closed now and we have a a really good wide applicant pool, I should say, you know, uh, but they have closed for this Think Tank 10 and applicants are being notified at the last round of applications, that is. And we have our selected fellowship as well, which is always exciting to have emerging educators receive a fellowship that covers potentially almost all of the costs of Think Tank outside of their travel. So we are not accepting any more applications for this summer. (laughs) But if folks are interested, our future forward publications are always available on our website. Um, That's a great way to just understand a little bit more about ITI. We will have some upcoming Think Catalyst events that we're planning. If people are interested and are not on our uh, newsletter mailing list or want to get more information from us, they can always send an email to our generic email, our info at Integrative Teaching International, or you can reach out to any of the board members. I believe they're listed on our website. So you can also reach out directly to a board member if you want to receive more information or somehow get involved. There's always an event happening, I feel like, (laughs) whether that's one of our own events or something else. So just kind of pay attention and and look for the next thing. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. And reach out if you are curious about something or have questions. We'll make sure to link the ITI stuff in the show notes for this podcast so that folks can find you guys really easily. Yeah. Yeah. We also roll out an educator showcase and I think Valerie, you were recently on it, right? That's right. Yeah. I think I was the month of February. I know. I know. (laughs) So the educator showcase is also really fun because it's a little personal look at that educator, but also some project ideas from them. So again, if you're just looking for fuel for your classroom or wanting to be refreshed somehow, we have a lot of outlets for that through ITI and fate does as well too. You guys are awesome at that. (laughs) Well, and thanks again so much. And I, I, I look forward to seeing you again soon, I imagine. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Uh, Well, thank you so much for including me, and it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.